السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونشكره ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ولا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners Once again we gather for the monthly tafsir of the Holy Qur'an. As you're aware, we've been studying and listening to the tafsir of the final surahs of the Qur'an, having started from the back with the final surah, قُلْ أَعُوذُ رَبِّ Today, Insha'Allah, we will be studying Surah Al-Fil and Surah Quraysh, the 105th and 106th Surahs of the Qur'an. One of the main reasons for starting with the shorter Surahs towards the end of the Qur'an is that most Muslims are familiar with these particular surahs. They are the shorter surahs of the Qur'an. Not only are Muslims familiar with them, but most Muslims have memorized these final short surahs of the Qur'an in order to recite them regularly in their daily prayers. And so it's only fitting that we take a look at these surahs first in the hope that we familiarize ourselves with their meanings and their message just as we are familiar with their words. Furthermore, the whole idea of repetition is to constantly remind ourselves. And if the reminder is lost on us, then the very purpose of repeating these surahs regularly is also lost. I won't go into much detail here, but you may recall a few weeks ago when I was speaking about the topic of how reminding benefits the believers and how the very 
spirit of the Qur'an is not one of imparting new information on each occasion, but rather to serve as a reminder. For those of you who study Arabic, you may wonder what the word Qur'an actually means. In fact, uh, I responded to this question not too long ago when one of the senior students of one of the senior classes while studying tafsir of the Qur'an asked the question, what does the word Qur'an itself mean? And I gave them a detailed reply, which I will provide a summary repetition of. But this shows us what the spirit of the Qur'an actually is. So what does the word Qur'an in itself actually mean? Well, this is a bit technical, but for those of you who study Arabic, Qur'an is actually a masdar, <coughs> a verbal noun, <coughs> a gerund of the verb So Qur'an is actually a masdar, a gerund, a verbal noun, just as qira'ah is. And it later became an ism from a masdar. <coughs> but in short, what the word Qur'an originally refers to is not qira'ah in terms of reading. Rather, it refers to something which is publicly recited in a ritual manner, repeatedly. And that's best understood from the verse of the Qur'an in which Allah says, وَقُرْآنًا فَرَقْنَاهُ لِتَقْرَأُهُ عَلَى النَّاسِ عَلَى And a Qur'an, which we have divided, divided into what? Into different portions to be recited on different occasions. وَقُرْآنًا فَرَقْنَاهُ And a book which we have divided, so that you, O prophets of Allah, may read it, the book, the Qur'an, to the people, publicly. With pause, with hesitation, meaning very deliberately, in portions, so that the message is delivered. So Qur'an actually does not mean reading per se, it means a ritual recital, which is repeated and in a very public, congregational manner, similar to hymns in a congregational act of worship, similar to ritual readings of other scriptures, which again are done in places of worship, in a public manner, in congregation. And these are divided on a weekly, monthly, annual basis, or periodically they are divided into different portions. So the people, weekly sermons, for instance. But the weekly sermons, not the public sermon of a preacher, but rather the actual passages that are read. In, the, in a similar manner, this is what Qur'an actually refers to. It's only later that the word Qur'an began to be used in a much wider sense as we understand it today. But originally, this is the meaning of Qur'an. Now, why do I say this? The very reason for saying this is that the word Qur'an itself speaks about repetition, about ritual reading. That's what the Qur'an means. So more than just simply a book of information, more than just simply a book 
uh, that provides new information on each occasion. The Qur'an's original purpose is a public ritual recitation as a reminder for people, something which is repeated again and again and again. And the best example of the Qur'an is Surah Al-Fatiha, of which the ulama have said that in essence, Surah Al-Fatiha, being the first surah of the Qur'an, is actually a summary and a microcosm of the entire Qur'an. Everything which the Qur'an contains is more or less summarized in Surah Al-Fatiha. And how many times and how often do we recite Surah Al-Fatiha? In every rak'ah of every single salah, every single day, repeatedly. And so the purpose of the shorter surahs is the same. We recite them regularly in salah. But it's not simply a matter of recitation. We should be reciting with reflection, with understanding, and reminding ourselves, not just of the words, but of the actual meaning and message of these words that we recite repeatedly as a Qur'an in our everyday lives. So this is the main purpose for beginning with the short surahs. Having said that, uh, Surah Al-Fil and Surah Quraysh are two very famous surahs of the Qur'an. In fact, they... They are the beginning of the last ten surahs of the Qur'an. Well, they are the beginning of the last portion of the Qur'an, which most people know by heart. So let's have a look at both surahs. Uh, another reason for explaining both surahs together in conjunction, rather than uh, separately, is that Surah Al-Fil and Surah Quraysh are interconnected. They are related. And Surah Quraysh, although it's a distinct surah, is more or less a continuation of Surah, Surah Quraysh, is more or less a continuation of Surah Al-Fil. Surah Quraysh, meaning Laylaf Quraysh, is a continuation of Surah Al-Fil. Alam tarakayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-Fil. And that's why it's been narrated that Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab, radiyallahu anhu, he recited, as you know, the Sunnah method of recitation is Surah Al-Fatiha, followed by one Surah. Yet publicly, Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu, while it's leading prayers, recited Surah Al-Fatiha at the beginning, and then he recited Surah Al-Fil, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-Fil. And then, without reciting Bismillah, he immediately recited Surah Li'ilaf Quraysh. And, and as you will uh, come to realize, the meanings of both Surahs are actually connected, and that's why we'll be going through both Surahs today. Surah Al-Fil, <coughs> first of all, I'll quickly translate, the, read the Arabic and translate the words. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Adam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashab al-fil. Have you not seen what your Lord has done with the... Or have you not seen what your Lord did with the people of the elephant. Alam yaj'al kaydahum fi tudlil. Did he not make their plot or make their scheme go astray? Wa arsala alayhim tayran ababil. And he sent against them 
birds in flocks. Tarmihim bihjaratim min sijil. Who pelted them with stones of baked clay. Fajalahum gasfim makul. So he made them like stubble, eaten, like eaten stubble. I will explain all of the words. This is a very simple translation. Unfortunately, I'm unable to, because of the constraints of time, I'm unable to render, uh, well, for two reasons. One, because of time constraints, and also for the sake of simplicity. I haven't given a very precise and deep translation of Surah Al-Fil. I've kept it rather simple, uh, just for the purpose of understanding. This is the 105th Surah of the Qur'an, famously known as Surah Al-Fil, taken from, meaning the elephant, taken from the first verse. And it's also known as Surah Alam Tara. Now, this is a very early Surah of the Meccan period. And in it, Allah addresses the Prophet ﷺ. But obviously, he is not the primary addressee. Through him, Allah is addressing the whole of creation. And especially the people of Mecca at his time, the Quraysh. The surah refers to a particular incident. It was a major incident. Known later as Amul, well, uh, the incident of the elephant. And this requires a bit of a history, not too detailed, again, because of lack of time. But, as you may recall from my various explanations in different talks, the situation of Arabia was that the Arabs were divided into many different tribes, and there was no Arab empire or Arab country per se, an Arab nation per se, as a single political entity. They were divided into many different tribes and to their, they were surrounded by various empires, the Sassanid Persian Empire to the east and the northeast, the Byzantine Roman Empire to the north and the Abyssinian Empire to the west in Africa. And the, this was at the time of the Prophet ﷺ's birth, and even before, parts of Arabia were under control by different empires. So, for instance, in the northeast, you had the Lakhmid Arabs, who were a powerful force, but they were Christians. And they were under the total influence of the Sassanid Persian Empire. They were their vassals. To the, and that was the zone of Persian influence. To the north of Arabia, you had the Banu Ghassan, the Ghassanid Arabs. Again, they were Arabs, but again, they were Christian and they were vassals of the Byzantine Roman Empire. To the south of Arabia, where modern day Yemen, in Yemen, at one time, the Persians held great influence there. But later, they were driven out 
and the Abyssinians actually controlled southern Arabia, part modern-day Yemen. And then, sometime before the birth of Rasulullah wasallam, the Abyssinian, the Abyssinian ruler in Yemen, on behalf of Abyssinia, he rebelled and he became a ruler in his own right. And then eventually, again, he became... When the new Abyssinian ruler ascended the throne, this Abyssinian king in his own... Well, this king in his own right in the south of Yemen became the viceroy of the Abyssinian emperor. So this was the whole political climate and the division of Arabia. Parts of Arabia were controlled by Persia. Parts of Arabia were controlled by the Byzantine Roman Empire. Parts of Arabia were controlled by the uh, Abyssinian Empire. And none of them actually directly ruled. They all had viceroys or vassals who ruled parts of Arabia. And the reasoning was, as I've mentioned before, they considered the Arabs to be wild and ungovernable. So they used their own Arab vassals to control the rest of the Arabs. And Central Arabia, where the Mukkans were, the people of Yathrib and Medina were, these Arabs were considered totally ungovernable. So this area wasn't controlled by anybody. Now, in the year 570 AD, in the year of the birth of Rasulullah wasallam, a major incident took place. And the background to this incident was that the same Abyssinian viceroy in Yemen, he, had, he was Christian as well. So you had Christian groups all around Arabia except for Central Arabia. You had Christians to the northeast under the Sassanid Persians, Christians to the uh, north under the Byzantine Romans, and also Christians in the south. So this Abyssinian viceroy, who was a Christian, he built a huge cathedral uh, and a major place of centre of worship in southern Yemen, in the capital, Sana'a. And he had hoped that this place of worship would become the centre of pilgrimage for all of the Arabs from the whole of the Arabian Peninsula. Not only to rival Mecca, but also to surpass it. Unfortunately, his ambition wasn't realised. People did not take to this new place of worship as they were accustomed to the Kaaba and to Mecca al-Mukarramah. One. Only the Christians visited, but the pagan Arabs took no interest. In fact... Things became so bad that the pagan Arabs were incensed that the Abyssinian viceroy and governor should attempt to rival their famous place of worship, the Kaaba in Makkah al-Mukarramah, so much so that, according to one narration, one Arab went and he defiled and desecrated the, the church. And according to another narration, some other Arabs went and caused arson damage to the church by burning it. So these were the pagans. Because of this, these incidents, as well as the fact that his ambition had not been realized of surpassing Makkah al-Mukarramah and attracting the pilgrimage of the Arabs from all over Arabia to his newly built church or cathedral, 
the Viceroy, in anger, he decided to attack Makkatul Mukarramah and march against it. And so he assembled a huge army and marched northwards to Makkatul Mukarramah. Since he was a, an Abyssinian viceroy and southern Yemen is uh, very close to the Horn of Africa, so, well, to, uh, to Africa. So what he did is that he had elephants, African elephants, in his army. And he himself had one huge elephant at the head of the army. He marched northwards with this army of elephants and with his own huge elephant at the head of the army. When And he marched northwards with the express intention of attacking Mecca and actually demolishing the Kaaba. The Arabs learnt about this and a number of tribes en route to Mecca al-Mukarramah attempted to intercept this huge army but all of them were soundly defeated and he marched forward uninterrupted I'm summarizing the whole story shortly before he reached Mecca before actually launching an all out attack he sent word to the Mecca nobles and dignitaries offering them terms of negotiation so some of the Mecca nobles went out to meet him one of them was the Prophet wasallam's grandfather Abdul Muttalib Abdul Muttalib was a nobleman of the Quraysh he was very handsome in appearance and a man of great of gentle disposition but a man of great personality and or when the viceroy, whose name was Abraha, when Abraha met him, he was actually quite impressed by Abdul Muttalib, and he invited him to sit down and discuss with him. Before he had invited these Arab nobles of Mecca, Abraha had sent forth a few raiding parties to raid the area around Mecca, and in doing so, they had taken off with a lot of loot and booty, including livestock and a lot of animals. In, in those raids, Abdul Muttalib had lost 200 camels of this. So, Abraha, when he invited these nobles, and then he sat down with Abdul Muttalib, the Prophet ﷺ's grandfather, and he began speaking to him. Abdul Muttalib said to him that, I would like my camels back. My 200 camels. So Abraha said to him through the interpreter that I'm very disappointed in you. When I first set eyes on you, I was quite impressed by your appearance and your disposition and your character and mannerisms. And I considered you to be a noble dignitary of Mecca. But you proved yourself to be otherwise. Here I am with a huge army come to conquer Mecca and to demolish your place of worship, the Kaaba, and all you are worried about is your camels. So Abdul Muttalib replied with a very beautiful phrase saying that I am the lord of my camels and that's what I am concerned with. The Kaaba has a lord of its own 
and he will take care of it. Eventually the discussions broke up and his camels were returned to him and Abdul Muttalib left along with the other noble, nobles and dignitaries of Mecca and Abraha repeated his threat that vacate Mecca otherwise you will be killed and I will march in Mecca and anyone who remains, this was the purpose of the negotiations. He was intent on destroying the Kaaba, but as a gesture of goodwill, he invited the nobles and the dignitaries of Mecca to tell them that you have a choice. You can either just surrender the city, and I will still go ahead with destroying the Kaaba, or you can put up a fight. In that case, I will invade the city and kill anyone who resists. So the Quraysh and the people of the Makkah uh, al-Mukarramah, they were convinced that they could not stand up to such a huge army. And they were obviously quite frightened because of these huge beasts, the elephants. So they decided to vacate the whole of Makkah and retire to, and retreat to the mountains and the hillocks surrounding Makkah al-Mukarramah. And they did so. Before doing so, however, many of them went to the holy precinct of the Kaaba. And they prayed in earnest. And quite tellingly, what we learn from the narrations and the poetry of that period is that even though there were hundreds of idols around, in and around the Kaaba, on that occasion, they prayed exclusively to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of them. They abandoned the idols and the statues. And they, played, they prayed exclusively to Allah. Praying and then retreating to the surrounding hills and mountains, Makkah was left vacant and exposed to Abraha and his army. Abraha marched forth. However, when he arrived near the outskirts of the when he arrived at the outskirts of the city of Mecca, all of a sudden the head elephant which he was mounted on sat down. It stalled. When it stalled, the remaining elephant stalled, the army stalled. And it refused to move. It just refused to move. Some of the elephants were actually tortured in the process of getting them to rise and move, but they just wouldn't budge. In fact, if they were made to face any other direction, they would flee in that direction. But if they were made to march towards Mecca, they would stand their ground and refuse to move an inch forward. Whilst they were in that position, all of a sudden, remembering that Mecca is not too far from the coast of the Red Sea, and all of a sudden the army and also the Arab tribes who who had retreated to the mountains, they saw the sky darken with flocks of birds coming in from the direction of the sea. And there were swarms of birds, small birds, swarms of birds that darkened the whole sky. And these the, the, the swarms of birds flew over the army and released small stones on them, three stones each, one in a beak, one in each claw. And in this way, there was a constant sortie of attacks. There were constant sorties of attacks by these birds. It's a very detailed story, but I'm summarizing the army was pelted, bombarded with these tiny pebbles from the beaks and the claws of these very small birds, as a result of which 
The whole army was devastated, completely destroyed, routed. Those who fled were chased by the birds. And even though they may have fled a certain distance, they were caught and killed and destroyed. Abraha managed to return at least to some distance, but he eventually died also. And the manner in which they died, again what we learn from the narrations, wasn't just simply being pelted and dying under, under a hail of stones. Rather, when they were struck by these stones, these small pebbles, the pebbles actually caused their whole bodies to erupt and split, and their organs actually fell off piece by piece. So it was a horrendous sight. And this is why Allah describes them at the end of the surah as gasfim ma'kul, like stubble. What's meant by stubble or asf? Asf can be described as any food, especially grass or leaves, that animals eat and chew, but that they don't actually ingest, but they regurgitate. And once they regurgitate it, the chewed stubble and the chewed grass or the chewed crushed leaves that we can see from the regurgitated food of an animal, that is known as asf. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the whole army lying there destroyed in such a thorough and horrendous manner as resembling the stubble that is devoured chewed and spat out by animals. So this was the story. Now, obviously the Quraysh, the people of Mecca, considered this to be a great miracle, and it was miraculous. And they realized that Allah had protected the Kaaba in his own miraculous way. And they were very familiar with this whole story, with this incident. And in fact... Being a very momentous occasion, they marked that as a beginning of their calendar. So from that moment onwards, they would normally refer to events as having occurred in the year of the elephant, or a year after the year of the elephant, or ten years before the year of the elephant. So it became a milestone in their calendar and in their history. So the people of Quraysh, the Meccans, and not just the Meccans, but the surrounding tribes, were all familiar with this famous story and incident and this miraculous defeat of the uh, of Abraha's army, which contained huge beasts, the elephants. And they referred to this as the incident of the elephant. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the surah reminds them of this famous incident. And thus he says, أَلَمْ تَرَى كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Although he's addressing the Prophet ﷺ, the word, the syntax and the format of the words here is singular. So the addressee is singular as well. أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ Have you not seen what your Lord, referring to one person. So who is that one person? Obviously the Messenger ﷺ. But through the Messenger ﷺ, Allah is addressing the Quraysh, the people of Mecca, the Arabs in general, and every one of us. Have you not seen what your Lord did with the people of the elephant? Did he not make their scheme go astray? Did he 
and he's sent against them. Birds in flocks, who pelted them with stones of baked clay. So he made them like devoured or eaten stubble. Now, a couple of things about this particular story and this surah. What was so miraculous about this army being defeated by pebbles and by birds releasing pebbles? There's also another consideration here. Some people have objected to this whole story and they've provided a rational explanation to it, saying that the army was devastated by a breakout of smallpox, the disease, smallpox, and that's what actually devastated the army, not the pelting of pebbles. And there have been various interpretations of the words of Surat al-Fil, which ultimately point to the discounting of the birds actually pelting them with stones and a rather convoluted explanation is given to suggest that the pelting of stones refers to the breakout of smallpox. And the whole idea, and the reason for this rational approach to Surat al-Fil is that it appears to offend rational sensibilities, especially in relation to miracles. Well, this is it, that's the whole idea that it's a miracle. And the lesson of Surah Al-Fil is, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation. Allah Azza wa chooses His own method, His own approach to manifest His miracles as and when He wants. There is no constraining Allah's power. There is no restricting Allah's power. There is no circumscribing Allah's power. Allah Azza wa chooses to display and manifest his miracle in a manner that he wishes. It does not necessarily have to appeal to our reasoning or logic or our understanding. And different nations were destroyed in different ways. In fact, let's look at Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who opposed the Prophet Musa salam and his people, who subjugated them who enslaved them and caused, wreaked havoc and mayhem and was tyrannical in the land. So arrogant that he denied the... In essence, if you consider all the verses about Pharaoh, he actually denied Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not only that, but he said, I'm your greatest God. And in claiming to be a God himself, in claiming divinity exclusively for himself, one of the arguments he used was, Oh my people, don't I have the dominion, the kingdom of Egypt? And do not these rivers and streams flow beneath me. What he meant was the Nile was a greater source of water for them. 
but all the rivulets and streams from the Nile itself, and the Nile itself, all of these waters, along with the streams and the springs and the fountains that were natural as well as artificially made in the palaces and throughout the cities of Egypt, being a great civilization, he said, do you not see my power? Do I not enjoy the dominion and the kingdom of Egypt? And do, I not, do you not see all of these rivers and streams and these waters flowing beneath me? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala destroyed him, he chose to destroy him by causing the waters to flow over him. He drowned him and his entire army. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chooses to punish who he wishes, how he wishes. It doesn't have to be a huge punishment. In fact, some of the greatest tyrants were punished in the most despicable manner to reduce their worth even in death. Like Abu Jahl, when Abdullah ibn Mas'ud was about to strike off his head in the Battle of Badr. Even at the time of death, impending death, Abu Jahl said to him, sever my head slightly lower from beneath the shoulders so that in the row of heads my head will still stand high after death so many of the tyrants were punished and destroyed in the, in the most despicable manner and for Abraha and his huge army that went to destroy the Kaaba as a lesson for others as a lesson for the people of Mecca as a lesson for eternity, for the whole of creation. Allah chose to punish them with the smallest birds of his creation and with the smallest pebbles of his earth. And in that manner the whole army was destroyed. That in itself is a miracle. Nothing can restrict the power of Allah Nothing at all. In fact today, we see as human beings. Allah Azza wa Jal says in the verse of the Quran, And none knows the armies of your Lord except He, Allah. We as human beings, we've mastered so much, we've sunk to the depths of the oceans, we've dived to the depths of the oceans, we've landed on the moon, Except according to a few people. (laughs) We've sent probes out onto Mars. Man is planning manned missions to Mars. We scan the heavens. We have huge satellites. We have huge observatories. We've mastered so much, we've controlled the atom. We've made almost all the animals subservient. We pen animals into zoos. We control elephants. We've controlled and mastered so much. Of course, obviously, except ourselves. But the one thing, or a number of things that continue to defy us, that continue to disturb us, that continue to hound us, are diseases, viruses, 
And these viruses are the smallest of Allah's creation. Diseases have wiped out entire nations. And yet these are the smallest of Allah's creations. Bacteria and viruses. So, let us not pride ourselves on our strength. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us a lesson in this. And Allah mentions that lesson throughout the Qur'an in many places. That let no one, this is a paraphrasing, that let no one pride themselves in their strength. Look at the people of Ad. Allah warned the Quraysh that Allah has destroyed many of the nations who are far more powerful and numerous than you. So do not reject the Messenger Do not oppose him. This is just one of the lessons of Surah Al-Fil. And another great lesson of Surah Al-Fil, Alam Al-Fil till the end, is that Allah is telling, informing the Quraysh that you are well aware of this incident. You remember yourselves how you pleaded with Allah and you prayed to Allah in earnest, sincerely. Allah defeated and destroyed the army of Abraham. Allah protected the city of Mecca. Allah protected his house, the Kaaba. And Allah demonstrated his power and showed you his miracle. And that great miracle in itself was actually the harbinger and the foretelling and the forerunner of Another great miracle, which occurred only 50 days later. And what was that? The birth of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I say miracle in the sense that the form of his birth was not miraculous per se, but his coming was obviously a miracle and a mercy for the whole of mankind. And it's well known that the majority of scholars are, believe that the Prophet ﷺ was born in Amul Fil, was born in the year of the elephant, and approximately 50 days after this particular incident. So many of the older people from the time of the Prophet ﷺ were actually eyewitnesses to this incident, those very old people. And even those who had not witnessed it, because it was of their generation, they had learned of it and heard about this whole uh, story from eyewitnesses, from their parents, from their own immediate family, older family members. So the story was fresh. And Allah is reminding them that this was Allah's miraculous favor to you, O people of Mecca. Do you then deny Allah's messenger? Do you, do you then disregard Allah's messenger's message? Do you then... is disbelieve and do you then show such ingratitude this then leads us to the next surah like i said the two surahs are connected and i'll explain more about the lessons of both surahs uh, together moving on to the next surah this is surah quraish the 106th surah of the quran as i said although it is a distinct surah from the one before uh in reality, the meaning is continuous and the two are related and connected. Allah says, لِإِلَافِ قُرَيْشِ For the keeping of the Quraysh. إِلَافِهِمْ رِحْلَةَ الشِّتَاءِ وَالصَّيْفِ For their keeping the journey of winter and summer. فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ So let them worship the Lord of this house. الَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعِ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفِ He who has fed them. 
and save them from hunger. He who has granted them security from fear. Actually, this surah will help us understand Surah Al-Fil as well, and we can put all of it into one picture. لِإِلَافِ Quraysh For the keeping of the Quraysh, for the habituation of the Quraysh, I'll explain that more in a moment. For the keeping of the Quraysh, for their keeping the journey of winter and summer. So let them worship the Lord of this house, he who has fed them of hunger, from hunger, and he who has granted them security and safety from fear. Who were the Quraysh? We all know that the Quraysh is the famous tribe of the Prophet ﷺ. They were the rulers of Mecca. How did this name come about? In reality, well, the Arabs had a habit of naming or giving titles to themselves or to others after animals, like many of the tribal societies all over the world, in Africa, even the Native Americans. Many of them had animals, sitting bull and wild horse and etc. So the, and this is true for many tribal societies all over the world, especially from rural areas. And the Arabs were no different. So you find names such as Asad, Lion, Fahd, Cheeto, Tiger, Galb, Dog, actually meaning a powerful dog such as a wolf, etc. Well, a powerful dog, not just any dog. Qarsh means shark. Qarsh means shark. Yes, jaws. And the Arabs, as you know, the students of Arabic will know, and I've mentioned this before, they have what they call ism al a diminutive form of the words. So the Umar is a name, the diminutive of Umar is Umair. Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam told the younger brother of Anas Malik radiyallahu Ya Umair ma fa'ala nughayr O Umair, what has the little bird nughayr done? Nughayr is itself a diminutive of Nagr, a bird. Umair is a diminutive of Umar. So we ha- Hussein, you have the name Hassan. Hassan means good, beautiful. Hussein is a diminutive of Hassan, which means the little good one or the little beautiful one. And the form is invariably Fu'ayl. Hussein, Umair, Qusayr, Qusayr, Nughayr, Hussein. And Qarsh means shark. And Quraysh is a diminutive of shark. And Quraysh means little shark. Now, Fihr ibn Malik, one of the descendants of the Prophet ﷺ, his 11th ancestor, his name was Fihr ibn Malik. So the Prophet ﷺ's father was Muhammad ibn, Muhammad ibn Abdullah, son of Abdul Muttalib, son of Hashim. Son of Abdmanaf, Abdmanaf, son of Qusay, son of Kilab, son of Murra, son of Kaab, son of Lu'ay, son of Ghalib, son of Fihr, son of Malik, son of Kinana, and continuous. So Fihr ibn Malik, the eleventh ancestor of the Prophet wasallam, his nickname and title was Quraysh, the little shark. 
and he was a powerful figure. All of the descendants of Fihr ibn Malik, who was alternatively known as Little Shark Quraysh, are the members of the tribe of Quraysh. So these were the Quraysh. Quraysh never ruled Mecca. Khuzar, another tribe, a rival tribe, ruled Mecca. But sometime before the Prophet ﷺ, his fifth ancestor, Qusay, so Abdullah, his father, son of Abdul Muttalib, son of Hashim, son of Abdul Manaf, Abdul Manaf's father, Qusay, his fifth ancestor, he united the scattered tribes of Quraysh who were out of Mecca and he invaded the area of Mecca that was ruled by the Khuzara, defeated them and drove them out. So they exchanged places. The Quraysh were out of Mecca, Khuzara were in Mecca. After their defeat, the Khuzara dispersed into different tribes out of Mecca and Quraysh under the leadership of Qusay, the Prophet wasallam's fifth ancestor, they took up residence in Mecca al-Mukarramah and they unified the tribes of Quraysh in Mecca. And amongst the tribes there were two. There were those who were the most senior uh, Qusay's own immediate family members. They occupy the central part of Mecca and they were known as Quraysh of the inner parts of Mecca. And the remaining tribes who were distant relatives of Qusay, although they were from Quraysh, they were known as the Quraysh of the outskirts. And all the main duties and functions and responsibilities of Makkatul Mukarramah, political, military, social, and especially religious, such as the keeping of the Kaaba, the custody of the Kaaba, the feeding of the pilgrims, the watering of the pilgrims, and this is important. All of these famous functions, which were considered positions of great honor and dignity, they were divided amongst the immediate family members of Qusay. So the, these are the Quraysh. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and remember, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was born in 570, and then uh, 40 hijri years late, well, 40 lunar years later, when he proclaimed his prophethood, he... His primary addressees, his people, his primary people, the rulers and the most powerful and the elites and the nobles of Quraysh, of Mecca, were the Quraysh. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Quraysh. لِإِلَافِ Quraysh For the keeping and the habituation of the Quraysh. إِلَافِهِمْ رِحْلَةَ الشِّتَاءِ وَالصَّيْفِ For their keeping and their habituation of the journey of the winter and the summer. What does that mean? I'll explain what the journey of the winter and summer refers to, and then I'll explain what I mean by keeping and habituation. Again, let's look at Makkah al-Mukarramah. It wasn't an empire. It was a small city-state. But although I've always used the word city-state, that's only in contrast to the eventual city-state of Medina. However... It wasn't a large or powerful city-state, such as the city-states of Greece and Rome in the classical period, no. Mecca wasn't walled, for one thing. Secondly, the Quraysh were considered noble and dignified and honoured by many of the people, but militarily they weren't powerful. 
they led, well, the Quraysh were city inhabitants, and they were surrounded by wild Arab tribes, who were very powerful. And if the other Arab tribes actually marched on Mecca collectively, or they would have crushed Makkah al-Mukarramah, and the Quraysh would have been non-existent. And well before when the Quraysh defeated the Khuza'a, it was only the Khuza'a that they defeated. But the Quraysh weren't all powerful who ruled the whole of Arabia. No, they only held sway over Makkah al-Mukarramah. But they were they held a very dignified and prestigious position because of the Kaaba and because of Makkah al-Mukarramah. Arabs all over Arabia made a pilgrimage to Mecca. This is exactly what Abraha wanted to rival with his church and cathedral. Mecca was considered a holy sanctuary, a place of worship, a center of pilgrimage. Because of the religious position of the Kaaba and Mecca al-Mukarramah, this brought in trade, social prestige, honor, dignity. Disputes were settled in the pilgrimage season, in and around, well, in Mecca. Not only that, therefore the Quraysh became political power brokers, negotiators, adjudicators. This attracted trade. Mecca became a hub and a center of trade, at the center of a crossroad of trade between many different empires, Abyssinia, Persia, India, the East, the Far East, Byzantine Rome, Africa. This brought in much wealth. Despite the prestige, despite the honor, despite the religious dignity, despite their privileged position, despite all the trade and wealth, in terms of politics, in terms of military might, Quraysh in Mecca were always weak and vulnerable. Everyone treated them with deference and respect, and because of the Kaaba, because of the precincts of the Kaaba, and because of Makkah al-Mukarramah. This was the only source of their pride. Trade did not come to Mecca because of their mercantile skills or their business acumen originally. It came to Mecca because of the Kaaba, because of the Haram. And in answer to the dua of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, when Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam left his son Ismail and his wife Ummuna Hajar radiyallahu anha, and he left them, and at the edge of the valley he turned around and prayed to Allah, رَبَّنَا إِنِّي أَسْكَنْتُ مِنْ ذُرِّيَّةِ بِوَادٍ غَيْرِ ذِي زَرْعٍ عِنْدَ بَيْتِكَ الْمُحَرَّمِ رَبَّنَا لِيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ فَاجْعَلْ أَفِئِدَةً مِنَ النَّاسِ تَهْوِي إِلَيْهِمْ وَارْزُقْهُمْ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ لَعَلَّهُمْ يَشْكُرُونَ O oh my Lord, O oh our Lord, indeed I have settled my family, members of my family, in a valley, without a single blade of vegetation, in the Bayt al-Muharram, close to your sacred house. Why did he do that? رَبَّنَا لِيُقِيمُ الصَّلَاةِ O our Lord, so that they may establish salah. Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam left his son Ismail and Ummuna Hajar radiyallahu anha in such a manner, the hadith of Bukhari states, that Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam 
let Ummuna Hajar dismount with her baby Ismail cradling him in her arms. And he gave her a leather bag of water and a bag of dates. A bag of dates and a leather bag of water. And he departed. She said to him, in whose care do you leave us? Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam replied with one word, Allah. Ummuna Hajar radiallahu anha's reply was, In that case, he will never allow us to perish. Imagine, she's there with her baby, Ismail alayhi salam, in her arms, with one bag of water, leather bag of water and a bag of dates, in a valley without a single blade of vegetation. What yaqeen, what trust in Allah, she says in, she says, in whose care do you leave us? He says, Allah, not even in the care of Allah, he just said Allah, and her reply, instant reply was, إِذَن in that case he will not allow us to perish. When her food and water ran out, she left Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam and frantically began her search for water, and running to and fro between the two hillocks, and especially where there was a dip where she couldn't see Ismail alayhi salam. And she ran in that period. Imagine Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loved the, her behavior, her efforts, her endeavor, her sacrifice, and the sacrifice of her husband and prophet Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam and Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam so much that Allah introduced all of these simple acts of survival and simple acts of care for her child into the pilgrimages of Umrah and Hajj for eternity. That's why we do Sa'i. That's why we run between the hillocks of Safa and Marwa. That's why we run in between in imitation of Ummana Hajar radiallahu anha. That's why we drink of the well of Zamzam, which was the barakah of Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam. After she frantically searched, there was no water. Jibreel alayhi salam descended and dug his heels into the ground. And there gushed, the, gushed forth the spring of Zamzam. So when Sayyidina Ibrahim left Sayyidina Ismail, there was nothing and no one there. His prayer was, I have settled members of my family by your sacred house in a valley without a single blade of vegetation, of no vegetation whatsoever. And that has always remained the case with Makkah al-Mukarramah. But what is his prayer? Oh Allah, oh our Lord, cause the hearts of the people to flutter to my descendants in Mecca, and feed them and sustain them of produce and fruits. From that moment onwards, Allahu Akbar, the people of Mecca, despite not having a single blade of grass and vegetation in their region, they have always enjoyed the best of foods, produce and fruits from all over the world in all seasons, all the time. And that was through the barakah of the dua of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. So the Quraysh were always in a very difficult and precarious position. Their prestige, their wealth, and their dignity and honor, and even the trade that became to Makkah al-Mukarramah through all the trade fairs, all of this was a result, not of their own endeavors, rather this was a result of Makkah al-Mukarramah being a place of worship and a sacred precinct. It was through the barakah of the Kaaba and the barakah and the blessing of the du'a of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. 
Otherwise, militarily, politically, they had no position whatsoever. And this is why when Abraha uh, attempted to invade Makkah al-Mukarramah, no one could have resisted that might. But Allah saved the city of Makkah and the Kaaba miraculously. As part of their trade, the Quraysh, the Prophet ﷺ's great-grandfather, Hashim, Qusay's grandson, and the Prophet ﷺ's great-grandfather, Abdul Muttalib's father, he introduced a regular method of trade whereby he managed caravans of trade that would travel north in summer, so, sorry, north in summer and south in winter. They would travel north to Syria, to the cities of Basra, Damascus, Gaza. In fact, Hashim. Prophet's great grandfather was buried in Gaza. That's why Gaza, another name for Gaza is Ghazza to Ghazza to Hashim, the Ghazza of Hashim. And he died there on trade. So they would travel northwards to modern day well, to Sham, modern day Syria, Jordan, and Palestine, the Levant. And there they would normally travel to the cities of Damascus, uh, Bosra, Jerusalem, and also uh, Gaza in Palestine. And to the south, they would travel to Yemen, Sun'a, and even to Abyssinia. And these annual trade journeys became very famous, bringing in great wealth. And they became the hallmark caravans of the Quraysh. All the Arabs knew, and the Arabs would join these particular caravans under the leadership of the Quraysh. So again, the Quraysh enjoyed great privilege and prestige. And they were held in honor. So despite being just a small tribe, they actually had diplomatic relations with the royal courts of Abyssinia, of Persia, of Rome. And that's why when the Muslims emigrated to Abyssinia in the fifth year of prophethood, the Quraysh sent a delegation to the royal court of Abyssinia almost as a diplomatic uh, delegation. So they had diplomatic and trade relations with these huge empires, despite being a very small group of people in themselves. All of this prestige, this wealth, these trade caravans, this leadership, this recognition, all of this was due to the Kaaba and the holy city of Mecca and nothing else. And these two famous trade caravans, these famous journeys of the winter and the summer, uh, of the trade journey to the north in in winter, sorry, in summer, and the trade journey to the south in winter, again, this was a source of great prestige, pride, and wealth for them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds them in both surahs of all of these favors. What's the first favor, O Quraysh? Remember how Allah miraculously defeated the army of Abraha and prevented him from invading your city of Mecca, destroying your homes and your livelihood, killing your people and destroying and demolishing your place of worship, the Kaaba. O Quraysh, remember that. Remember how Allah destroyed them, how Allah protected you. O Quraysh, remember how Allah has made you the inhabitants of his holy city, of these precincts of the Kaaba. How the Kaaba brings you protection, honor, prestige, recognition, trade, wealth, influence. O Quraysh, 
Remember how barren Makkah is. And he says, min In the second last verse, in the final verse of Surah Quraysh, what does he say? He fed them of hunger. Nothing grows in Makkah or around it. And yet the Quraysh never starved. They only underwent famine because of the curse of Rasulullah for a short period when he prayed against them. However, prior to that, despite nothing growing in and around Mecca, the Quraysh enjoyed wealth, food, produce, so much, the best of fruits. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave them food. Allah granted them security. Every human being, as an individual's, and as societies, and as communities, as peoples, as nations, we all aspire to two great things, peace and prosperity. Everyone wants peace and stability and security. Everyone wants prosperity. As an individual, we want peace, we want prosperity. We want peace of mind, peace of heart, peace of person, peace of body, peace of surroundings, peace of accommodation, peace of environment. We want peace in every way, in our hearts and minds, in our bodies around us. We want prosperity. We want the prosperity and the flourishing of our wealth, of our minds, hearts, of our bodies, of our belongings, our possessions. Everyone wants peace and prosperity. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Quraysh that look at how you enjoy peace and prosperity. Your prosperity does not come because of any wealth, any produce, any agriculture, any resources, any minerals, your your prosperity comes from the Kaaba and its holiness and its sacred precincts. Your security, Mecca was in Central Arabia. I say Central as opposed to Southern Arabia and Northern Arabia. So Mecca was in Central Arabia, an area considered ungovernable, wild tribes all around. And Allah mentions this in the verse of the Qur'an. أَوَلَمْ يَرَوْا أَنَّا جَعَلْنَا حَرَمًا آمِنًا وَيَتْخَطَّفُ النَّاسُ مِنْ حَوْلِهِمْ Do they not see, i.e. the Quraysh, that we have made Haram, the sacred precinct of Mecca, secure? Whilst وَيَتْخَطَّفُ النَّاسُ مِنْ حَوْلِهِمْ People all around them are being snatched. And that was the case. Tribes raided each other, fought against each other. I told you last week and on previous occasions that Arabs would capture Arabs and then sell them into slavery. Women would be captured, children would be captured and sold into slavery. That's how Zayd ibn Haritha, who was an Arab, who was captured in childhood, sold into slavery. And that's how he eventually found his way to the house of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So we all around them, Allah says in the Quran, people are being snatched and kidnapped and carried away because there was no security or safety. But we made the haram a secure place. Does not Allah say elsewhere in the Quran, Allah swears by the fig and the olive. And Mount Sinai, the fig and the olive are figurative, referring to Jerusalem. Allah swears by Jerusalem. And Mount Sinai. And then finally by, and this secure city. So Makkah al-Mukarramah, Allah had made it secure. But where did the security and safety come from? Not because of the military might of the Quraysh, not at all. They were a small tribe in comparison to the others. Not because of any 
protection from any of the other empires. No, they were independent. Allah granted them safety and security only through the Kaaba and the sacred states of Makkah al-Mukarramah. So Allah says, remember all of these favors upon you, O Quraysh, how Allah protected you from the army of Abraha and miraculously destroyed them using just birds and pebbles from their beaks and their claws. Remember how Allah saved the Kaaba. Remember how Allah gave you the custody of the Kaaba. This is what brought them pride. They were the custodians of the Kaaba. They were the ones who watered the pilgrims. And Allah refers to that in the Quran. Addressing the Quraysh, that have you made the fee, the watering of the pilgrims and the occupying in worship of the Al Masjid al Haram, have you made these things equivalent to those who believe in Allah and in the final day? Meaning, they always prided themselves, even for the eight years before, after the Hijrah, before the conquest of Mecca, by claiming that the Muslims are in Medina, we control the Kaaba, we control Mecca, we are still the custodians of the Kaaba, we are the ones who feed the pilgrims and water the pilgrims. So Allah told them, have you made the watering of the pilgrims and the inhabitation of Al-Masjid Al-Haram equal to those who believe in Allah and in the final day? i.e. the Sahaba radiyallahu anhum, they were not equal. Allah Azza wa tells them in another verse, in fact they were protected by the presence of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah Azza wa told them in Surah Al-Anfal, وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ لِيَعَذِّبَهُمْ وَأَنْتَ فِيهِمْ وَمَا كَانَ اللَّهُ مُعَذِّبَهُمْ هُمْ يَسْتَغْفِرُونَ وَمَا لَهُمْ أَلَّا يُعَذِّبَهُمُ اللَّهُ وَهُمْ يَسُدُّونَ عَنِ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ وَمَا كَانُوا أَوْلِيَاءَ إِنْ أَوْلِيَاءُهُ إِلَّا الْمُتَّقُونَ Allah says, and Allah is not one to punish them, the Quraysh, as long as you, O Messenger of Allah, are amongst them. His presence was a mercy for them and a protection. Further, Allah says, and nor is Allah one to punish them as long as they seek Allah's forgiveness. And why wouldn't Allah punish them? Or why shouldn't Allah punish them when they prevent others from al-Masjid al-Haram وَمَا كَانُوا Even though they are not the true custodians of al-Masjid al-Haram. They may have the keys, they may have access, they may control access to al-Masjid al-Haram. And they may physically occupy al-Masjid al-Haram in Mecca. But in reality, they are not as true custodians and guardians. Allah says, in Its guardians are only those who have taqwa. So the Quraysh, the security and the safety that they enjoyed was only through the blessing of the Kaaba and Al-Masjid Al-Haram and Makkah Al-Mukarramah. Their prosperity was not of their own business acumen and their trade and their wealth. It was because of the Kaaba. All of it was to do with the Kaaba. That's why Allah says, when they were protected from Abraha and his army, it was through the blessing of the Kaaba. The position that they enjoyed and the privileges that they enjoyed amongst all the Arab tribes was because of the Kaaba. The prestige that they enjoyed was because of the Kaaba. The trade relations that they enjoyed and their journeys to Yemen, Abyssinia uh, in winter and to uh, Syria in summer and their trade commercial relations, even in the royal courts of Persia, Abyssinia and Byzantine Rome, all of these relations, commercial and diplomatic, were by virtue of the Kaaba. Their food that they enjoyed, the fruits and the produce that they enjoyed, that rolled in from all over the world, 
was not because of a single blade of grass that grew in Mecca, but was by virtue of the Kaaba. As a result, Allah says, فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ So let them worship the house, let them worship the Lord of this house, the Kaaba. That was the message for them. But they chose to oppose Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So in essence, these two surahs uh, go together. This is a joint. Uh, this is a joint meaning of both surahs. Now, we may say that well, this is all to do with the Quraysh. This is all to do with uh, the people of Makkah at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. When we every day recite these short surahs in our prayer, in our salah. How is this applicable to us? How is this relevant to us? It's very simple. The greatest message in both of these surahs to us is, one, the miraculous manner in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected the Kaaba, the power of Allah, how Allah chooses to manifest that power. And another great lesson for us is, that let us not be like the Quraysh, in that we disregard the favors and the blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But let's be grateful to Allah. And be constantly reminded of Allah's countless bounties and blessings on us. As humans, we are always looking at what we don't have rather than what we have. And when a person sinks to that state, he or she will never be happy. Always clamouring for something else, always clawing, clawing for something else. And this attitude to life leads a person to their grave. And they are still not happy because there's always something else. As the Prophet wasallam said, if man was given a valley, not a sovereign, not a coin, not a bar, not a nugget, not a bar, not a tray, not a crate, not a vault in a mountainside. But if man was given a whole valley of gold, imagine, a whole valley of gold, man would still desire a second. And if he was given a second valley of gold, he would still desire a third. And the Prophet ﷺ says, وَلَنْ يَسُدَّ جَوْفَ بْنِ آدَمَ إِلَّا التُّرَابِ وَيَتُوبُ اللَّهُ عَلَى مَنْ And nothing will fill the vacuum in man except the dust of the earth. And Allah turns and re- Allah turns in accepting repentance to whomsoever he wishes amongst his servants. Nothing will fill this space in man, this vacuum in man. Even a valley full of gold, even two valleys of gold, even three valleys of gold. Because we're always wanting something else. And that's why in English there's a very beautiful phrase, do you know what life is? Life is what happens while she's planning something else. Life is what happens. Life is what goes by as we're always looking elsewhere. Life is what happens whilst we are planning something else. We never live for the moment. We never, that's not to suggest we should live for the moment. My my idea of saying live for the moment is not eat, sleep, drink and that's it without a care. No. What I mean is 
in our minds, we're always either living in the past or in the future. Never now. Never now. It's not easy. It's a struggle. And that's why a person is never grateful for what he or she has now in them around them. And that's why we are taught to be grateful to Allah for every little thing. Every little thing. We drink a sip of water, Bismillah, in the name of Allah. Alhamdulillah. A morsel of food, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah. We are reminded to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for everything. Once Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, well we don't have time, but... He taught his followers to be grateful for everything. Even a sip of milk. Even a sip of milk. Even a sip of water. We should learn to be grateful to Allah Azza wa Jal for what we have. And what is that gratitude? Shukr. To be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to use the gifts and the bounties and the blessings of Allah in their correct manner. A good way of describing it is... Imagine if someone gives you a gift of a pen, a very expensive pen, and the person feels, their intention is, that I don't want to just give a gift, I want to give this person a gift that will remind them of me, that will always remind them of me, that will show my appreciation. So they give the person a gift of a pen. And their idea is that this person will keep the pen on them, on their person. Will use the pen, write with the pen all the time. Whenever they use that pen, they will think of me. They will be reminded of me. They will appreciate my gift. A person gives an individual that pen with that intention. Now imagine, if the other person says, thank you, puts pen away, Forgets all about it. And the other person, the, the one who gave the gift, realises and comes to know that the pen was never used. It was discarded, put aside. And the only gratitude expressed was a simple thank you. How will that person feel? Will they feel that their gift was appreciated? Will they feel that their gift was used in the manner that was intended and desired? Will their intentions and their hopes and aspirations for the giving of that gift be fulfilled? No. In fact, would they be indifferent or would they be very disappointed and actually hurt, despite the person saying thank you or jazakallahu khairah? Because one of the meanings of gratitude is to use the gift in the manner that it was intended. And this is why this is why one of the meanings of gratitude and shukr for us is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us limbs and organs of the body. We use these gifts of Allah in the manner that Allah has wished. Allah has given us eyes and ears and a tongue. This tongue should be used for the remembrance of Allah and not for sinning against Allah. If a person sins with the tongue, not only is it a sin, Not only is it a sin, not only is it an offence, 
But it's a form of extreme ingratitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That Allah gave us this tongue for a particular reason, and look how we are using it. This is why kufr, which as a tertiary translation, not even a secondary translation, not even as a primary translation, kufr as a tertiary meaning, as a tertiary translation, evolved into disbelief or rejection. What is the original, what is the secondary meaning of kufr? I've explained in great detail before. It means ingratitude. And why is kufr considered ingratitude? Because kufr means to conceal, to cover, to hide. And a person who is ungrateful of Allah's gift, of life, of limb, of mind, of body, of person, this person whilst being ungrateful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what this person does, he or she conceals the gifts of Allah. So we pretend by concealing the gift of Allah, by hiding it, covering it, we pretend that it doesn't exist. If it doesn't exist, we don't have to be grateful for it. We pretend that it doesn't exist. When we pretend that it doesn't exist, we feel no compulsion to be grateful for it. When a person is not grateful for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's gift, the person will misuse it and reject it, deny it, and reject any favor of Allah. And therefore, a person will feel no need to be grateful to Allah in any way, least of all in believing in him or accepting his message. So, the greatest lesson for us in Surah Al-Feel and Surah Quraysh, when we recite it every day in our salah, is quite simply... That, oh believers, be grateful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's gifts to you, his countless favors, his numerous blessings, in all forms, primarily peace and prosperity. See how secure and prosperous you are. See how safe you are. See how wealthy you really are. Compare yourself not to those who are above you, but compare yourself to those who are beneath you to those who are less privileged. And then be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for these gifts. Do not be like the Quraysh, who are ungrateful in every way. And this led them ultimately to total disbelief and the rejection of Allah's greatest messenger, the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So, فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ that is the message of Surah Al-Feel and Surah Quraysh. Let them, not just the Quraysh, but the whole creation of Allah, let them worship the Lord of this house. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Alkotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alkotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.